Well, here's my first question. Do you think it's a little dangerous handing out guns in a bank? Did you know Hillary Clinton actually won the popular vote? Hi, welcome to Michael and Us, a depressing, nostalgic journey through the cinema, the art, the influence of Michael Moore. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage, here to inaugurate Michael and Us Season 3. Welcome back, folks. (laughs) God, here we are, back where the podcast started. How did this podcast begin, Luke? It's a good question. I I remember a conversation in Toronto's uh, illustrious comedy bar. Yeah. I mean, but then again, I mean, the real origin story is back to a party at the student newspaper where we met, probably where one of our first conversations was about the cinema the art, the oeuvre of Michael Moore. Back in that summer, when we had just become editors of the Varsity, you and I used to hang out a lot, you know, sitting on the balcony at the the, newspaper. It was back when we had had the whole office, we had the titles and everything, but we didn't really have a newspaper to produce. We had this office and it kind of felt like like dressing in your dad's suit. Yeah, we drank way too much. (laughs) Yeah, and we we would just sit there and we would talk about things like Michael Moore. (laughs) Uh, we were at the comedy bar, and I had kind of wanted to do uh, a Michael Moore episode on my other podcast, The Important Cinema Club. Uh, Justin wasn't that into it, understandably, I think. <laughs> and I jokingly said to you, what if we did a whole podcast that was just we go through all the films of Michael Moore, and then we could we could also do, you know, Michael Moore Hates America, Fahrenheit <laughs> 9-11, you know. All your favorites. Yeah, and you were very enthusiastic. I think I was more enthusiastic yeah. than you bargained for. And, and I was like like no this is a joke you have to understand (laughs) there was one night when i had a pitch for an article for a a well-known publication that they had approved and then that night they came back to me and said oh actually we can't do it and it's for this reason and it was a reason that i found just very like appalling and terrible i don't remember that part of the story i'll tell you about it off yeah and then i thought you know what? Fuck it. The internet is out there. I could just put out whatever I want. And then I texted Luke and said, hey, you want to do that Michael Moore podcast tonight? And so later that night, we did the Slacker Uprising episode. (laughs) And the rest was history. It's funny because, you know, months before, or maybe it was even years before, I don't know, who knows what time is anymore. (laughs) We're almost 30. You know, we'd actually watch Slacker Uprising at my apartment. And I remember we went for drinks after and I was saying to you, like, No, no, like this movie, all the seeds of what's wrong with liberalism, it contains every single one of them. And you were like, no, that's interesting or whatever. But I don't think it really sunk into me. It was later. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Michael Moore has has bonded us so much over the years. I remember when we were editors of the Varsity, we after production nights would go back to your place and we would actually watch Michael Moore movies. We we did the the original Michael and us off mic. So then I remember another time, you know, maybe a year before we started the podcast, there was a night I came to your apartment after, like, I had just broken up with someone. <laughs> Do you remember this? And like a healing bomb. And I was the... just in a really terrible frame of mind. And we were like, what What could we watch that would be fun? And, be... and we watched the big one. <laughs> Do you remember this? <laughs> the big one. <laughs> I don't even remember. What was that one about? It's like... That's the one where he goes on the book tour. Oh, right. It's like... It's the proto-slacker uprising. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. When we watched the big one for this podcast, you know, I don't think Hillary Clinton had quite clinched the nomination, but she was almost there. It was long before Trump had become president. And 
you know, I may appreciate the big one more now because there were scenes in the movie where he interviews people in the Midwest, just regular people at diners, mm. um, you know, unemployed auto workers, normal people. And they're saying things like, well, you know, who would you vote for this election? None of it matters. Mm. And I don't know. Michael Moore was there in the big one, like on the <laughs> ground with his finger on the pulse of a certain something in America. Uh-huh, you yeah, know? I know you're right. The big one is a great film. It's uh-huh. a yeah, flawless, a flawless <laughs> masterpiece. I think we may have some new listeners to this episode. Uh, every time we do something current on Michael and Us, uh, we have a big spike. One of our most popular episodes was the last new Michael Moore venture. Well, I suppose apart from his Broadway show, mm-hmm. um, which you went and you did some gonzo reporting <laughs> on. But it was the Michael Moore in Trumpland episode, which I think might be our most popular episode to date. We didn't particularly like the Mike. Well, in fact, we really disliked the Michael Moore in Trumpland. What was it actually called? That was it. Was called Michael Moore in Trumpland. It that was, was actually called that. But so I guess for for people not familiar with the show, I guess it's been a bit inside baseball so far. So we should probably tell them like, what the hell are they listening to? What is the show? As you heard from Will before, the origin story. Having started the podcast with the explicit mission of going through both Michael Moore's filmography and all of the kind of spinoff. Um, the sort of liberal filmmakers that were kind of making, you know, bargain bin documentaries in the shadow of Michael Moore and also the kind of conservative filmmakers that were convinced, you know, he hates our country, but, you know, but God, he makes good movies. Uh, How can we tap into that populist yeah, they, cinema They made, created? They aped the style. Once we'd exhausted that, you know, Michael and Us season two was, which really began... It began sort of November 17th, uh, you know, 2016 or something. And we, you know, the podcast kind of became something else. I mean, implicitly, I think we didn't know this when we started the podcast, but what we were doing was we were looking at current events through the lens of these films, which had been formative to us, but which, you know, their politics, we'd really moved beyond and you know the conceit of the show as kind of goofy as it seemed it it's become less and less of a joke (laughs) well we moved on to just doing like political cinema that's right i mean and it's not always bad either although that seems to be what the people want we've you know Mm -hmm. we get fewer hits when it's Ilya (laughs) kazan or or (laughs) sergey eisenstein or whatever but we do that as well i feel like that is important to the uh uh, cosmology of (laughs) that's right yeah yeah. it is and we also love conservative kitsch we've done deep dives into the oeuvre of uh dinesh d'souza friend Mm. of the show steve bannon we've watched some of his movies yeah uh, steve bannon a lot of people don't know um after i guess he was a wall street finance guy Mm. uh you're favorite anti-establishment you know maverick uh he made these kind of bargain bin documentaries about like sarah palin governing mm-hmm. alaska things like that i would say the spiritual heart of the show has been you know 2000 to 2008 the bush era in other words mm-hmm. that's the era of you know the iraq war and the, the wall street collapse uh, and everything that has shaped the generation that is that is our generation and i guess for will and i being in kind of early university in 2008 when the obama thing happened i think our experience is certainly from a lot of the feedback we've got from the listeners of the show living through kind of this brief you know euphoric moment of like oh things are really going to get better and then seeing Mm -hmm. them get progressively worse i think 
it's kind of been weirdly important for us again in a way that started as a joke and has, has got a little more uh, convicted as a as a podcasting enterprise. Um, <laughs> Going back through the cultural paraphernalia of that era, especially, and thinking about it in relation to the often kind of ineffectual resistance Mm -hmm. uh, that we're so bombarded with every day on Twitter and in the mainstream as we witness the horrific spectacle of the Trump presidency. Where were you when Donald Trump was elected, Luke? I was a few feet from where I'm sitting right now. I was here in the uh, Gore-Lieberman studios. I'm just kidding. I was here in my apartment. I was sitting, I think, exactly where I am right now at at your election night party. That's right. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, the fight song was playing. It was all, we were all raring to go. Maybe the worst night of my life. I have you, to say. You had a worse time than me, I think. I remember you, you know, you were kind of an island of calm that night. You kept saying things like, L- look, guys, she's still going to win. Like, it's not the time to panic. And, you know, we were all looking at our New York mm. Times app uh-huh. that said 30% chance, 40% chance, 50% <laughs> chance. And I, I think I left pretty early, actually, because I yeah. just wanted to go to bed. I remember you had a certain affect about you that was kind of, obviously you weren't happy about it, but you you were also saying things like, well, it's too bad they didn't have a more popular candidate they could have. Uh... Well, I think that uh, the 2016 election was something that, it, it taught me an important lesson, which frankly was to trust my own instincts a little more, because yeah. I was, you know, braced like everyone else for what it's like all the experts and all the amateurs they all tell us what the result's going to be i'd felt all along that there was a significant chance that that hillary clinton could lose Mm -hmm. and yet i i had you know checked my own instincts and said no well you know nate silver says this so you know later when the british election happened there was i guess a sort of a, a a similar version of this where you know i've i've been a supporter of Jeremy Corbyn since before anyone had heard of him but I have I had felt going into you know that election like look we've we've all tried our best you know my my friends in the UK who've helped make the Corbyn leadership possible they've done absolutely everything they they can but look the obstacles are just they're too great because if the media says this can't happen mm-hmm. if labor's starting f the pollsters tell us they're 21 points behind so nothing could be done. And guess what? It turns out that when you present the electorate with a platform that's going to meaningfully improve their lives, when you break from the tired, uh, the received wisdom, the dogmas, the orthodoxies of a completely sclerotic establishment, people actually respond to that. And once again, you know, when that exit poll dropped in June of 2017, mm-hmm. Labour's gained, Theresa May's gambled this whole election, lost the majority and this happened under radical left leadership, there was a big part of me that was like, yeah, I knew this all along. Like, I should learn to trust myself mm-hmm. uh, a lot more. And so, yeah, being... I, <laughs> I, I don't know where I'm going with this, but uh, I guess, uh, yeah. th- like, the last few years in all kinds of ways have been weird learning experiences for, for all of us, I think. And I think for a lot of people who kind of came of age when we did, we're all sort of learning to trust our own instincts yeah. a little better. Yeah, I feel like something kind of snapped in me that night in November of 2016. And I I don't know if I could fully articulate it, but it's both very hard and also weirdly liberating to have so many of your base assumptions. Yeah, your kind of unthinking assumptions shattered. But like you become both more cynical, but also kind of more idealistic at the same time. 
And uh, I should say at this point, shamelessly, that we do have a Patreon. And uh, if you're not a subscriber already, we hope uh, you'll join us there. Mm-hmm. It's it's an extra, epi- well, two extra episodes a month. So basically we do a free episode like this once every two weeks. Mm-hmm. And then once every two weeks, we do a Patreon episode. Just more of that uh, delicious, juicy, you know, ironic mm-hmm. Michael Moore themed content that you know and love. And it's a great place to meet cool singles in your area, <laughs> you know. Um <laughs> These thoughts were, of course, sparked by the return of Michael Moore to the podcast, patron saint of the podcast, the man without whom there would be no podcast. <laughs> well met two weeks ago. <laughs> I met two yeah. weeks ago, but you have to be a Patreon subscriber to learn about that. <laughs> Tonight, Luke and I went to see... Uh, I, I just can't even believe it. We went to see a brand new Michael Moore movie in a theater, Fahrenheit 11.9. <laughs> you know, I have this specific memory because I had that exact same thought. You know, as we we're entering the theater, you know, the lights went down, the, you know, the trailers start up, the magic of the movies, you know. And I was I was remembering how when I went to see Star Wars uh, Episode <laughs> 3, Revenge of the Sith, and the dumb, dumb teenager that I was, I thought... I'm going to remember this for the rest of my life that yeah. I was here when the, you know, <laughs> and what a fucking terrible movie. But, uh, Michael Moore, I have just such a strange relationship with him at this point to have spent something like 16 weeks, just immersed, <laughs> you know, thinking nonstop about Michael Moore. <laughs> it's a weird headspace to be in. You uh-huh. know? Like, do you remember there was a point, I think maybe around the time of Sicko, when we were kind of like, God, I would just love to watch a movie for this podcast that's not Michael Moore, <laughs> to be thinking about a guy who's not him. It's really funny because, you know, before we did the Michael Moore podcast, um, and we will get on to the, the brand new Michael Moore <laughs> movie in a minute, we've just got a lot on our chest, folks. Um, before Will and I got on to the Michael Moore podcast and back in 2016, mm. what we used to do is we used to hang out and we used to watch good movies Mm -hmm. sometimes bad ones but often good movies and it was exhausting because we were doing one michael moore movie a week Mm -hmm. or one michael moore adjacent movie a week and yeah i do just remember like thinking god i want to you know like a like a rock star has been on tour for (laughs) you know it's like god we we got to go to tulsa next it's like we've just been to cleveland like i i can't i gotta get off this bus like the show me some beauty when does the road end you know it was like that and uh and now we kind of have the same thing except it's no longer michael moore movies it's just that it's it's harder to squeeze the it's the whole ecosystem of bad (laughs) things Yeah, yeah yeah which we just voluntarily immersed ourselves in my next guest is kind of the polar, philosophical polar opposite of Donald Trump, I think, but maybe not. We'll find out. His first film was the classic documentary, Roger and Me, which was so great. Please welcome my blue-collar panelist, Michael Moore. He's terrific, I tell you. I loved, I loved what he did. Oh. If I was Roger, I wouldn't have liked it, but I, I enjoyed it. I hope he never does one on me, though. I <laughs> so Fahrenheit 11.9, I gotta say, I kind of liked it, you know? <laughs> so we just saw this movie, folks, and uh, this is sort of the freshest we've ever done, a, you know, a brand new Michael mm-hmm. Moore movie. Most of his movies we've kind of, I think, lived with for a decade, so yeah. we've been able to let our thoughts marinate yeah for for many years you know we went there with two friends and we were kind of talking a little bit about the movie after but then as we walked back our thoughts turned to other things because we wanted to we wanted to save Mm -hmm. the fresh content Mm -hmm. 
so really will and i have not talked about the movie until now we don't really have anything planned i mean i think we're just gonna we're just gonna go through it and and see where it takes us well first of all i think the two best things about the movie i think you're gonna agree with me on this are instead of (laughs) you being a full two hour like drumpf bashathon he uses it as an opportunity to one call attention to the flint water crisis and use flint as this kind of microcosm of everything that's wrong with both the republicans and the democrats and also he gives a significant amount of time in this movie to going after the democratic establishment and for advocating for the Democrats to move in a leftward direction and to call attention to kind of this potential new wave of insurgent populist left candidates and social movements. So the film begins, you know, I was joking with Will before the movie started. I was like, if it started, if it had just the exact same intro as, as Fahrenheit 9-11, where you see the confetti raining down, you see Al Gore giving the thumbs up and it's like, was it all a dream? And he did exactly that, except it was Hillary Clinton on election eve. It was like her her Philadelphia. What's funny rally. about reprising that Fahrenheit nine eleven opening is just the assumption that we all remember the Fahrenheit nine eleven opening. Only you and I remember. <laughs> Only remember. Michael Moore historians yeah. and Michael Moore, true fans of the show. For most people, Fahrenheit nine eleven was a movie that they saw in two thousand four. They and... haven't seen it for fifteen or more <laughs> <Yeah>. years. <laughs> they have no memory of anything that happened in it. But yeah, that's how we started it for the true fans. Yeah, did you know Marilyn Manson's actually really smart? Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> um, so the film kind of begins with that and this sort of, I guess, cold open, the sort of first 10 or 15 minutes before the credits roll is basically just, you know, some clips of like Hillary Clinton's victory was packaged as inevitable and then it, it just kind of fell apart and now we live in this nightmare. I found even that opening a bit affecting because you see all this amateur footage of people who are talking about how excited they are to have been able to vote for a woman yeah and you know many of these are just very ordinary people who are filming on their cell phones and you know it is it is sad to watch you know knowing how heartbroken they're going to be Uh uh-huh although i I mean i know you're not going to be sympathetic to hillary clinton i'm sympathetic to those people yeah i I, I completely agree with you and i think the tragedy which frankly the film captures is that those people and their desires and their hopes were were so much more noble than what they were actually offered so the the film then goes kind of straight into things donald trump is president and as will was saying it really uses the flint water crisis as a framing device Mm -hmm we're walked through you know governor rick snyder as kind of this was and you know this is maybe a little contrived but i'm willing to to grant more of this you know it's kind of like the you know the proto trump was rick snyder in 20 in 2010 in michigan um i think that's maybe a bit of an exaggeration but certainly Moore does a very good job telling us this story and even though people may be familiar with the flint water crisis i think they're not maybe aware of the political context which happened this this plutocratic republican governor who decided to partly privatize the water supply and ended up redirecting the the clean water in the city just to the gm plant because gm had given him a lot of money so Mm -hmm. the water was 
was good enough for uh, GM to wash its construction components with, but not good enough for the people of Flint to drink. (laughs) The plan was to build an unnecessary pipeline from Lake Huron, even though there was a pipeline to Lake Huron already, but the unnecessary pipeline would have benefited many companies. Yeah, was there going to be a private pipeline Mm. as opposed to the public one that already existed? But during the construction of that pipeline, Flint would get its water supply from the Flint River, which of course was very polluted and despite assurances from the governor's office that the water would be safe and sanitary you know it was disgusting water that was giving people um legionnaires disease and people were dying Lead from poisoning it. terrible things children being poisoned mm-hmm. by it and in as you mentioned the only company that got access to clean water was general motors mm-hmm. and so Moore uses this thing pretty effectively as kind of a metaphor for the the moral rot in the american political and economic system um he rather provocatively frames it as an ethnic cleansing of a mostly black mm. city yeah not wrong and everyone both republican and democrat know that there's nobody in flint with any power to make this a national issue Mm-hmm. You know, because he also devotes time to Barack Obama's infamous appearance in Flint. This was one of my favorite moments in the movie. And I think it's it's one of the reasons that Will and I maybe responded better to this than we were both expecting for me anyway, because of this scene. I mm-hmm. mean, um, the scene is it appears quite late in the film, like you're deep into the Trump presidency and then it, it suddenly you're back in time. And President Barack Obama is flying in on Air Force One and people are cheering and they're so excited. And they're booing the governor. And everybody is thinking Obama's going to come and he's going to make things right. And then Obama, I, I don't know how widely disseminated this clip was. I mean, I do you remember this? I think I think I heard about it, but it, you know, it's possible I might have heard about it from Michael Moore. You so, know? so Obama didn't declare a state of emergency, which would have given Flint access to all kinds of things. They would have sent in disaster relief and healthcare and things like that. And instead, Obama, um, he did you know what he does best, which is he kind of comes and he hears people out and he acknowledges mm-hmm. suffering and he acknowledges the pain and he says this is unacceptable and then having done that he gets in the motorcade and he drives away and in the midst of this speech his voice kind of cracked and he asked for some water and then when the water comes he sips it i mean visibly like he doesn't yeah. or he lets it touch his lips he doesn't actually really drink it yeah and then he does the same thing again um there was a press conference sort of backstage where he's got water and he he won't drink it and it's pretends he pretends to drink it it because the political class has to go through this this ritual of pretending like they actually are too squeamish to to drink the water which like let's be honest was almost certainly safe like i'm sure the water that was there for president barack obama to drink that was being brought to i'm Mm -hmm. sure the water was safe but even if he had gulped it you know, that wouldn't have made it a better, that wouldn't have made it an effective gesture, right? No, no, of course Cause not. Because by sipping it or gulping it, he's just trivializing mm. the, or, or minimizing the pain that the this community has been through. But, you know, you know, Obama, who is usually effortless in front of a crowd, actually, you see, struggles with this crowd. And he's kind of saying, settle down, people, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. He's saying, wow, it's a, it's a rowdy, you know, it's a rowdy crowd. And, you know, some of the activists that were there who more interviews say, like, when this kind of fake drinking of the water happened, you know, there was an audible gasp in the room. Mm-hmm. 
And some of the people that, that witnessed that were, were obviously quite heartbroken by it. It's the most awkward I've ever seen Obama be in a room like that in front of people who, you know, who want to be supporters. Mm -hmm. And they're just, they can't, the urgency of the situation is so great and he's just not delivering what they need. Mm -hmm. And as much as he's bearing witness to their pain with all the power he has, with all the, you know, incredible communication skills he has, he's not offering them anything. And more including this, given how, you know, if you go back to the end of Capitalism, a love story, for example, the way that he kind of tried to hedge on Obama, this represents a, I think, a real break um, from him. You know, one of the things that, you know, Moore has always been a little dodgy on or has often been a little dodgy on is is his kind of relationship to the Democratic mm -hmm. Party and the fact that he has been good at sometimes supporting these kind of outsider insurgent candidates and then frankly sometimes has really uh gotten in line but you know you know at his worst he hasn't even owned that i mean we began the podcast with uh not to continue the nostalgia tour too much but you know we began with slacker uprising which is a film detailing what is essentially his campaign to elect john Kerry president but in the context of this whole slacker uprising, I mean, it wasn't until a few days before the election he could even bring himself to endorse Kerry. I don't think he even said John Kerry's name at any point on the slacker uprising tour. He just said vote mm -hmm. and preferably against George Bush. We have Bush. to vote against George Bush and against the war. And of course, the Democratic candidate for president yeah. was, was saying, we'll do the war better. Well, you know? he swung in the other direction in the 2016 election because I actually think... He learned his lesson from that, but he learned some of the wrong lessons. Mm -hmm. So in the Michael Moore and Trumpland documentary, what he realized was it's not enough to be against somebody. You have to make a case for somebody. Mm -hmm. You have to get people excited about voting for somebody. So the Michael Moore and Trumpland documentary, I think, was motivated out of like this genuine fear that Trump could get elected. But the case that he made for Hillary Clinton was, it was not, bad. It was a bad case. It was like, well, he, he manufactured a case that didn't exist. He said, you know what? If you just elect her, she'll, she, she could turn out to be the left wing reformer that you want. Yeah. But, but he made that case with sort of no evidence. You know, I'm not sure what the case for Hillary Clinton really is, ex aside from not being Donald Trump. It was her turn. <laughs> we invest. Uh, can, can I get some water? Come on up here. Give me some water. I want a glass of water. I want a glass of water. Sit down. <laughs> I think Fahrenheit 11.9 is, is most effective as a Trojan horse. You know, he starts it with this introductory segment that seems mostly sympathetic towards Hillary Clinton, and then the first... I want to say third of the movie is the Donald Trump section mm -hmm. where he goes through most of the familiar ideas about Donald Trump and what he represents. But then he moves on to not just the Flint water crisis part, but also talking about the West Virginia teacher strike Parkland shooting, talking about the Parkland shooting and the, you know, David Hogg and all of the student protesters, but then also talking about, the superdelegate system and the way that the Democratic Party itself has been as sort of, 
you know, not as anti-democratic as the Republicans, but comparable. Well, I mean, that is an incredible sequence. And I actually don't think the, you know, the superdelegate issue is kind of esoteric, I think, for some people. But, you know, as a Bernie Sanders supporter from 2016, I found that section very powerful because, mm-hmm. you know, basically what Moore does is it's, you know, you see the Democratic convention, all these states that Bernie Sanders won overwhelmingly, West Virginia, for example, as Moore points out, he won every single county in West Virginia. It was an overwhelming victory. And yet then you see the delegate distribution of the convention and Hillary gets more delegates than he does because they're these unelected people like Howard Dean who are essentially able to override. Um, they just have this kind of elite veto on, mm-hmm. in all the all these states, these state democratic parties that are run by these, you know, these party elites, these apparatchiks, you know, whose salaries often come from the donor class that bankrolls the democratic party, you know, highly ethical uh, groups like, you know, Raytheon and Lockheed Martin and mm-hmm. others. This is why this Russia shit is such bullshit. What, what is this like sanctity of the American democracy that the Democratic Party claims they're upholding? I mean, the Democratic Party is, has voter suppression issues of its own. That's right. I mean, uh, the, you know, the Democratic House leadership may be bought and paid for, but uh, a Russian troll farm ran $50,000 yeah. worth of ads in Michigan or something. Yeah. But no, so I mean, that that segment, I think, was powerful for me. You're seeing all these states where it's like, it's just the bottom in brackets, like Bernie Sanders won Montana, Bernie Sanders won mm-hmm. Rhode Island, you just see Hillary winning all these things. And just these, these crestfallen people who are there as delegates for Bernie Sanders or as observers, and just the anger of those people. And, you know, I, I you know, kind of being tapped into that crowd... I felt a discernible shift. I think if the Democratic Party actually just handled that differently, they could have had like the same result. Yeah. They wouldn't have had the same antipathy. Well, she did win the popular vote of the primary. That's true. Yeah. In, 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 yeah. in unfortunately, what she was... She didn't al- need the superdelegates. No, I mean, unfortunately, what was already... A, I mean, there are all kinds of criticisms you can make of the primary mm-hmm. process itself, like the New York primary, which we see, we see some of some footage from the Sanders, the big Sanders rallies there. Mm-hmm. That was in something like either late winter or early spring, something like that. Mm. But in order to vote in it, you had to have registered in like October, November. And not only that, but something like 100,000 people mysteriously just disappeared from the Mm. voters' rolls. And we had, you know, New York elections the other week. And uh, yeah, things like the mayor of New York, his son was almost not able to vote because that's how sleazy the New York State Democratic Party is. There was already a palpable sense of unfairness going into that convention. The Democratic Party elites uh, not only took the view that like, okay, you know, we have a problem here and we have to manage it because, you know, uh, these people feel as if they've been treated unfairly. Um, They, you know, they were like, we don't even need these people. Where else do they have to go? We don't have to speak to their concerns at all. We don't care about the teachers union rep who uh, supported Bernie Sanders in West Virginia is now here as a delegate. Because where where else did, where else does she has have to go? Uh, we don't care about the people from the National Nurses Union. You know you know who we care about. We care about conservative Republicans in the Philadelphia suburbs. And every three votes we lose from these contemptible people in Midwestern towns that we've mm-hmm. long you know abandoned, we're going to gain three affluent college educated Republicans. Uh, in 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 philadelphia in orange county whatever 
Um, that was the attitude they took, and they didn't have to do much. I mean, like, even with Hillary Clinton, I think they could have won. They didn't have to do much. I mean, think about how nuts it is that the Democratic candidate for president in 2016 could not bring herself to a full-throated defense of of a $15 an hour minimum wage. Like, just baseline Mm -hmm. things that would have turned out the Democratic base, and they were unable to do them. And so one of the things this film does well is it conveys the the real anger and frustration of you know people within the democratic base and it it's very good at showing uh, how those people are organizing often outside the democratic party to do you know really important things which you know democratic state legislators have long ago abandoned mm-hmm. um you know the teacher strikes which will mentioned the sections involving the parkland students i actually i found quite moving in mm-hmm. in some in yeah, some, yeah, me too. In some me places too. you know now having said all this the film unfortunately did lose me a bit in the final act and i'm not talking about the part when Moore, so Moore really. Oh the, God, I know what you're gonna say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so for the first for the first part of the movie, you know, Moore really avoids some of the gimmickry that Will and I have rightly, I think, taken him to task for in the past. Right from his first movie, which is still his best film, there is a performative side to him. In that film, it works. The, it works the best. It's deployed with the greatest effect. Although even in Roger and Me, I think it's the least interesting. Side yeah, of it Roger, is. It is Roger the least interesting yeah, yeah. because so Michael Moore will do this thing, and if you've ever seen any of his films, you, you're familiar with this, where he kind of affects a naivete that he doesn't actually possess. Mm-hmm. Because Michael Moore knows, for example, when he's standing outside uh, the New York Stock Exchange and he's in this bemused Midwesterner, he's you know asking the bankers that are coming out with briefcases, "Can you explain to me what a derivative is?" And yeah. it's like he know you know he knows when he approaches members of Congress mm-hmm. and he asks them. I'm just having a petition to have, you know, members of Congress yeah. send their kids to fight in Iraq. He knows that that's a gimmick. Mm-hmm. He avoids well, this. Yeah, it's for- it's performance art. I mean, he did have like a whole prank show, yeah. two prank shows uh-huh. where he just, where it was all about just the performance art of it. And I guess he still thinks that this is part of what people pay money to see. And sometimes on rare occasions that works or it has a... I an- think the best prank that he, or the best piece of performance art he ever pulled was in Sicko the last third of that movie where he goes to Guantanamo Bay, which is, as he said, the only place in America with universal health care. And then he goes to Cuba and, uh-huh. and they get treated there. I think there was something about not only did the stunt like crescendo, but it also like said something very powerful. Yeah. You know, he does that. And I mean, I would say as a, unfortunately as a caveat to that, even when the bit is, rhetorically effective sometimes he undermines it by being too heavy-handed yeah but anyway for the for much of this film he really resists that and i was really i was i was quite enjoying it until he tries to get an interview roger and me style with rick snyder the governor of michigan well he doesn't try to get an interview he tries to do a citizen's citizen's arrest arrest. excuse me which is already a joke that he did in capitalism a love story he shows up with like a bag with a dollar sign on it or something yeah he's like i'm here to get the bailout money but like he ended that movie by putting a whole like police tape around wall street and saying he was doing a citizen's arrest of wall street so he's already done this before and it just totally whiffs because as usual you know he just goes and harasses some minimum wage security guard well no he does uh, he does to his credit he does get 
like Rick Snyder's communications yeah, guy. That's true. That's and then true. he the part of the gimmick I appreciated is when he is when he's like, I just the guy says like, oh, you know, there's it's just a minor crisis. There's not even a crisis. It's just the a water's minor problem. testing well. The water's now. fine. Uh, you know, we've actually heard it's cleaner than than bottled water. And then mm-hmm. Moore's like, well, I just happen to have a glass of water, tap water yeah, from Flinger. Yeah. Will you drink it? And he's like, I'm not. That's pretty good, but then less effective is the gag that follows immediately after where he goes to Rick Snyder's house, you know, buzzes his buzzer and, oh, well, he doesn't want to come out. Well, let's hose down his lawn. And so he's got a big, a big truck, you know. It says Flint water on it. And he hoses the governor's lawn. And unfortunately, that's the gag. You can just see sort of uh, in your mind's eye that shot of him in Bowling for Columbine (laughs) as he stands, you know, on Charlton Heston's lawn holding the photo. (laughs) Then he, you know, leaves the photo uh, and and walks away and says, what, you know, this what is you, the girl. Is this, this is the girl. What are you running from, Mr. Heston? Why are you running away? It's a particularly flaccid gag coming after Sasha Baron Cohen's show, uh-huh. which I think has kind of set a new standard for this sort of so- stunt. Soon to appear on a Michael and Us yeah, episode definitely. near you. So that is not even where the film lost me, though, because it did kind of recover its mojo a little bit after that. The third act of the movie is concerned with what Moore sees is kind of a descent into, you know, despotism in America. And I understand what he was trying to do. I appreciate the sense of urgency he's trying to bring to this, but I didn't like the execution at all. And it reminded me of where to invade next. And the, and the issue I had with the way he ended that film, which was kind of his last real like theater movie, which you and I saw what it would have been three years ago, something like that. Um, Maybe four. God, who knows? I don't know. Um, You know, now that we're getting older, time really goes by quicker, doesn't it? (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) Uh, I I think it was three years ago. Anyway, what I I didn't like about how he ended that film is, you know, the, the film suffers from kind of hyperbole and things, but the big issue with it was that he spends the whole movie building up to the idea that the United States has failed to achieve these things that were won by people in, in, you know, countries in, in Europe and in other parts of the world that are just these, they are just common sense social democracy, not having a, you know, having a healthcare system that, that everyone has access to, you know, having a, a prison system that isn't as brutal, that is more rehabilitative, you know, having access to post-secondary education, whatever. Mm. And he ends the movie by being like, but wait a minute, you know, Dorothy bangs the red shoes together or whatever. And it's like, um, we can go back to Kansas because it turns out actually America invented all these things. I just spent the whole movie telling you America could learn something from the rest of the world. Uh, but it turns out, you know, we had the, the magical power inside of us all along. So the movie kind of ends with this, as I mm-hmm. wrote in my review at the time, a jarring crescendo of Yankee exceptionalism. This movie suffers from a very similar and related flaw more very effectively and accurately spends the first part of the movie indicting the American political and economic system explaining the Trump phenomenon better than a lot of the political mainstream has been able to do. Uh, this is symptomatic. You know, normalcy in the, in America is bad. We didn't, like, flick a switch in November of 2016 and things became bad. Mm. He's done that very well. And then all of a sudden it feels like he actually falls back on something kind of like that. What he says at the end of this movie is that America was never actually great, but it could be great. He flicks, he flips back at it, at, you know, at the very end of the movie. He owns the, the thesis that he has established earlier in the movie, but that's not... In my view, that's not what I think the the final act of the movie does. He interviews Timothy Snyder, 
I mean, who's a historian who has come out with what is, in my view, a pretty rubbish kind of grifting book around the Trump presidency Uh called On Tyranny. The last act of the movie is the Trump is Hitler section. I mean, it is actually Trump is Hitler, and he has Timothy Snyder say something like, uh, oh, you know, people say don't use the Hitler analogy, but history is useful or something like that. And and I don't know, the, the film has been so good at, at indicting the American system. Mm. And this, to me, felt like something from an earlier, less thoughtful Michael Moore film. And I mm. really... I really didn't appreciate it. I appreciate what the aspiration of it was, which is to tell people like, look guys, it's it's crunch time. Mm-hmm. This is really serious. We have to break with things because we are going to lose even the imperfect, you know, faux democracy mm-hmm. we had before. We're not going to be able to preserve that. But I, I really didn't like the way he did it and it, it was quite demoralizing for me. Did you think the comparison to Hitler was overly simplistic or that it was sort of warmed over from, you know, comparisons to Hitler that we've heard for the last three years? I think he could have done it a little more thoughtfully. Yeah. um, Because he introduced it as a gag, right? I mean, when when the Hitler thing is first introduced, you see a rally, like Hitler is dubbed with Trump's voice. And like, so it's Pretty initially, lame, yeah. it's initially done for comedic effect, but then mm. he spends like a good section of the final arc of the movie. I kind of groaned when this section started because it's just kind of like, oh yeah, it's, it's this argument again. Mm-hmm. You know, it also comes after this long section about not just the Flint water crisis, but also the Parkland students. Yeah. Like it, it kind of seems to be crescendoing to this big point about this next generation that's going to save us. But- and then it comes back to this idea that Trump is Hitler, which is such a kind of worn out. Well, I idea. don't know why it's necessary because the film has already established that the United States is a dystopia and we have yeah. to do something about it. And so when Timothy Snyder says, um, you know, uh, history is it's useful, you know, no, there's no there are no mm. perfect analogies, but it usefully elucidates things. I don't yeah. know how much this. This yeah. elucidates things. Why does it matter if he's Hitler if he's already Donald Trump, right? Yeah, like, I mean, the Moore plays some audio clips, for example, of the uh, of, of victims of ICE. Uh, you know, young children are being separated from their families. This is juxtaposed over footage from the 1930s. And, like, you don't need to bring it... The 1930s doesn't elucidate anything. This is what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. it's just... It's gimmickry to bring it in. And, I again, I understand what... I want to try to give him the benefit of the doubt here. I understand he's trying to bring urgency to this. He's trying to show that this is part of a, a never-ending struggle, all of this, for democracy. But I, I wish that he had kept the tone consistent because I thought the film up to that point was quite effective. Our town is dying. One out of every four homes is an abandoned, dilapidated structure, and you get told, keep picking up trash and let leaders do what leaders do. Elected leaders in our towns, in our, uh, in our states, in our country, absolutely are self-serving. They have no idea of what it's like for a single parent to put food on the table for her child. You know, you come home and you realize that I I can take you five minutes from here and show you where kids have it worse than the kids I saw in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm. So that's why I come back here and I started speaking up for the things that I believe in and I will not shut up for nobody. And I don't give a shit who you are. I'll fight you in the damn street right now. Okay. Um, um. Something that I think has maybe capped Michael Moore from being 
as useful a presence as he could be is the fact that he's not particularly consistent. You know, in Where to Invade Next, he ends the movie by saying, oh, well, we actually had all these innovations. But now in this movie, he ends it by saying, well, actually, America was never great, but it could be. Which I'm so I was yeah. gl- so I, glad to hear I'm, that. I'm more sympathetic to this movie than I am that one. Yeah. Or he made... Michael Moore in Trumpland, which is such a disingenuous case for Hillary Clinton. And now it's just MSNBC yeah, liberalism. And, but now he comes out with this movie where it's like, well, actually, the whole Democratic establishment was rotten and it should have been Bernie the whole ah. time. And, and we're going to have to blow it up. Um, I, th- I frankly think that he argues his argument a lot more convincingly this time around. But it's hard to kind of trust him as a as a commentator. There's always this kind of sense that, you know, he's somebody who regards himself as very pragmatic. And he's always trying to figure out how can I best communicate this message to the unwashed masses? When I suppose in the in the most cynical reading of the movie, which I, I don't think I have, but mm-hmm. in the most cynical reading of the movie, you know, you can look at the, the sections with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, with Bernie Sanders, with some of these other insurgent candidates and in the Midwest, in Florida, you know, these these people who are often quite exciting, who are doing important things, you know, there's a cynical reading of that, which is like, he's just read, he sees which way the wind is blowing, you know, within American liberalism, within the Democratic Party, and he's trying to get out ahead of it. And he's mm-hmm. trying to, you know, he's trying to angle his sails yeah. you know, in just the right way to catch the wind. I mean, what would you, what would you, how would you, resp- I'm not positing I, yeah, that, yeah, read, that I, reading I, myself. I know but, what you mean, but well, I think there are things that he has remained consistent on. I think you know, this is a guy who was in favor of universal health care, yeah. you know, long before it was the national issue that it is right now. You hear that, Paul Krugman? I think, you know, his sympathies are on the left. I think where he's allowed himself to be corrupted is in the strategies that he uses to communicate his sympathies and the compromises he makes to communicate those sympathies. Yeah, I'd agree about his overall political instincts, although I think that if I was to sort of survey his career overall, I think that the quote-unquote pragmatic side you're describing has unfortunately, that's been what most of his, you know, the things that he is most known for when we revisited Fahrenheit 9-11, Bowling for Columbine, we found deep inconsistency, like Mm -hmm. incoherence even within those films, even the theses of those films it's in turn they're internally contradictory mm-hmm. this film i don't think to its credit i don't think it suffers from that i think it is coherent it just falls off the wagon a few times although i guess in the most sympathetic reading it does so for reasons which are ultimately kind yeah. of noble i think his biggest problem over the years has been closely intertwined with what his biggest strengths are when he was at his peak as a polemicist and as an entertainer he was lauded as being able to bring these left-wing ideas to a really mainstream audience. But, you know, he regards himself as this, like, teacher, as this communicator to the unwashed masses, and he's always thinking about, how can I make these ideas go down with a, with a spoonful of sugar? How can I reach these audiences? And oftentimes he ends up underestimating his audiences. Uh, yeah, and I think that one of the lessons of 2016 is you don't need the gimmickry. You know, I think for all Moore's contentions that, you know, I mean, he points out, he points to statistics about how, you know, the United States, the general population taken as a whole, you know, actually by the, the standards of, you know, the current American political establishment, it's substantially to the left of it. Mm. Um, he points that out and yet he, he seems to feel as if, yeah, he needs to kind of sugarcoat things. He needs to kind of 
uh, convey these ideas with gimmickry. I think one of the things we learned from 2016 is that's not necessary. People understand that it's not, it shouldn't be normal. I won't say it's not normal because it is normal. It shouldn't be normal to, you know, live in the richest country in the history of human civilization, uh, to be surrounded by more wealth than has ever existed in the history of our species, and to have people without homes, to have middle-class people who are ostensibly living the, you know, they're living the mythology of the country, the kind of codified mythology of the country, and they're unable to, they're unable to afford health care. It shouldn't be normal to have, you know, middle-sized towns or small towns or cities that have decaying public infrastructure that are poisoning their citizens for the profit of a tiny minority at the top to have a political class which is so unresponsive to the popular majority that vast numbers of people, even when they're afforded the right to vote, choose not to because they don't see much of a difference. They don't think that the political class is at all responsive to them. And and the past few decades of American politics really bear that out. If you introduce that idea to people uh, and you campaign on it and you do so, you know, without qualification, without fear, you don't allow yourself to be subject to kind of the disciplinary mechanisms which so many of the so-called insurgents in the past, Howard Dean or whatever, most, you know, many of them have been fake, but um, that they have been uh, subjected to. You know, whether that's the media deeming people non-serious, deeming certain candidacies inevitable, acting upon received wisdom, kind of constantly fostering, reproducing received wisdom. This is the script. This is how these things work. You guys have to trust us. The pollsters agree. The focus groups agree. You know, these people are serious. These people are not serious. If you don't allow yourself to succumb to that, and you simply make the basic moral case to people, you can go a very long way. All of the evidence suggests to me that there is an electorally viable, potentially overwhelming, majoritarian coalition. I mean that in both the electoral and the Mm. popular sense for these basic progressive causes. For the United States to become something resembling a European social democracy and hopefully something much more. I think that this film shows that Michael Moore's politics have evolved for the better. I think that bodes well for the future. Uh, how well, I'm not sure. It may be that this new left-wing insurgency in the United States is simply reabsorbed by the Democratic Party that some enterprising career politician, you know, probably currently sitting in the United States Senate or House or at your favorite uh, big corporation is already figuring out a way to capture this and strain it of of everything that makes it worthwhile or it may be as i suspect that the genie is simply not to be put back in the bottle that there is now an anger and a hunger for change which the which the american liberal establishment uh which the is going to have to accommodate itself to one way or the other, whether it likes it or not. Well, it doesn't like it. Whoever the next Democratic presidential candidate will be, they will have to at least nominally be in favor of universal health care and a $15 minimum wage and free tuition. Yeah, and these are the things that should form, these are the basic commitments of, of a sort of renewed New Deal 
liberalism. My personal hope is that the left of center polarity in American politics is pulled a lot further to the left than that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that people have discussed the language Bernie Sanders used in 2016 around a political revolution. But frankly, uh, the United States does need a complete political realignment. It's positive, but it's not enough to have you know, hacks like Cory Booker sign on to a Medicare for All bill. Uh, Medicare for All, I mean, it's worth pointing out. Uh, you know, I, I uh, mentioned, alluded to friend of the show, Paul Krugman earlier. Paul Krugman wrote an entire book in 2007, something like that, um, which I read quite enthusiastically at the time, The Conscience of a Liberal. The entire mm. thesis of that book was that, uh, you know, something like Medicare for All is the single most important legislative goal for the Democrats. It's the barometer for progressive mm. politics. The the f- bright future we're aspiring to is a Democratic congressional majority, which will implement this. Well, they had that majority in 2008. Uh, they didn't implement it. All this having been said, the aspirations of the people who Michael Moore captures in this film, I think really do go beyond just bringing institutional liberals kind of into line. Um, the American political system needs a, a reformation. You know, it needs it needs something really, really substantial. And there's no getting around it. When these things happen in the United States or don't happen, as the case may be, you know, the global implications of that are massive. We are not going to be saved from the catastrophic effects of global climate change without significant changes within the United States. The United States is still the center of global capitalism. It's still the kind of uh, agent that is responsible for administering and enforcing uh, global capitalism in all of its institutions. So the stakes are very high. And I think for all the less positive things I've said about this movie, that's something that at least Michael Moore understands. So Patreon subscribers, don't worry. There will be another episode next week. I know you're feeling lonely and you and you uh, need some more content. It's coming. Uh, and summing up the episode, while Moore raises some good points, he's also blind to others, such as, what about Russian intervention? <laughs> Why didn't he spend more time addressing that? Yeah, who's paying him? Who funded this movie? Now watch this drive.